You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. David Heffernan from Queen's University, Belfast. This paper was entitled The Development of the Ulster Plantation in Early Stuart Donegal, circa 1609 to 1641. So, generally speaking, studies of the Ulster Plantation have tended to be conducted along geographical lines. This approach was pioneered by T.W. Moody in his study of the London Dairy Plantation, published in 1939, and has continued since, notably in R.J. Hunter's formidable study of the plantation in Armagh and Cavan, which was curiously awarded just an M. Late at Trinity College Dublin in 1969. John Johnson's work on the plantation in Fermanagh and Philip Robinson's doctoral thesis completed at Queen's University Belfast on the plantation in the county of Tyrone. Other studies of individual baronies or even of individual estates have supplemented these. In all of this, Donegal stands out for not having been the subject of a systematic study to date. The foremost work on the early history of the plantation in this county remains an article produced by Hunter and published in the Donegal edition of the County and Society series in 1995. While revelatory, Hunter's article was a case study of the plantation in just one precinct, that of Lifford, and as such paid little attention to conditions elsewhere in the county. Other studies, notably the sections on Donegal and Michael Percival Maxwell's The Scots Migration to Ireland during the reign of James I and Darren McGettigan's work on the response of the Irish of Tyrconnell to the plantation have also contributed towards our knowledge of the plantation here. Yet there is still a lack of consider- a considerable lack of information as to how the plantation developed here prior to the outbreak of the rebellion of 1641. In what follows, I want to provide an overview of how the plantation developed in the county while paying some specific attention to regions such as the precinct of Boilock and Banna that have generally been overlooked in the historiography. So the the plantation in Donegal was generally organised along the same lines as elsewhere in Fermanagh, Tyrone, Armagh and Cavan. These arrangements, enshrined in the orders and conditions, printed in London in 1609, and the subsequent project of plantation stipulated that individual precincts corresponding roughly with existing baronies would be granted to either English or Scottish undertakers, and in some instances a mix of servitors and natives. Okay, so this is the general arrangement. Uh, in Donegal, the Scots received a greater percentage of the lands with two precincts, those of Boilock and Banna in the southwest and Port Lock in the north. In the northeast, the servitors and natives were given the poorer lands in the northwest in the precinct of Kilmacrinan or Doe and Fanad while just one precinct was allotted to the English undertakers, that of Lifford, straddling the central and eastern parts of the county. There were some unusual aspects to the arrangement in Donegal, however. In the north, the Inishowen Peninsula, recently confiscated following the rebellion of Cairo Doherty, was given as a personal fiefdom to the Lord Deputy Sir Arthur Chichester, while in the extreme south, the barony of Tearhugh was divided up between a variety of special interest groups, including Trinity College Dublin and the Church of Ireland 
with lands also allotted towards the forts of ba- uh, the, the towns of Ballyshannon and Donegal and for the security of the forts there. Despite these peculiarities, though the arrangements throughout much of the county was that undertakers were granted individual estates deemed to consist of either 1,000, 1,500 or 2,000 acres, of which estates there were generally eight or nine in each precinct. The grantees were required to reside on their estates and within a few years make significant strides towards building a house in Bone and bringing in British tenants, while the English and Scottish undertakers were also to remove the Irish from their lands within a few years. Thus, clear articles were set down which the King, James I, expected the grantees to abide by. In what follows, I want to examine exactly how successful or not the grantees actually were in abiding by these strictly defined articles of plantation. Even by the generally slow standards set by the undertakers across the six counties, the grantees in Donegal were particularly negligent in beginning to settle and build on their estates in the early years of the plantation. In the earliest survey undertaken of the plantation by George Carew, in the summer and autumn of 1611, he reported little progress in most of the precincts. For instance, of the precinct of Kilmacrinan or Doan Fanad, which had been assigned to servitors and natives, Carew reported that he had not even visited the region, having been informed that none of the servitors had done anything other than begin to prepare some building material. Yet even this was optimistic, and when Josiah Bodley conducted a further survey of the region in 1613, his account of the servitors in Kilmacrinan suggested that most there had either done nothing by way of building or else were dwelling in largely dilapidated pre-plantation structures which, were, which they were slowly repairing. Equally, the eight Scottish undertakers in Boilock and Banner were markedly slow in developing their lands. Carew reported that they had done little other than appoint some agents to represent them in Ulster, while two years later, Bodley reported that only one of the undertakers, Sir Patrick McPhee, had built a house in Bone. This contrasted sharply with the pattern in the precincts of Portlock and Lifford. In Portlock, four of the eight estates had been granted to Cunninghams, hailing from Ayrshire in Scotland. These were all active undertakers early on, and as early as 1611, Carew was able to report that all four had brought over settlers with them, with livestock, and were beginning to build, a picture which was substantiated by Bodley in 1613, though as elsewhere throughout the six counties, land disputes over boundaries had hampered some building efforts. Likewise in Lifford, there was considerable progress in the early years. This was despite a rapid changeover of ownership, and by the time of Bodley's survey in 1613, half the proportions had been sold or assigned by the original grantees. Despite this, most of the current owners at that time had built, or were preparing to build, and had brought over a substantial number of tenants, largely from England. Indeed, Sir Thomas Cornwall was exceptional in this precinct, for being reported as having done nothing to develop his estate of Lismongan by 1613. These early reports foreshadowed a general pattern over the following years, whereby the plantation evolved positively to a much greater extent on the better lands lying in the centre and northeast of the county towards Drumgown Lock and Lock Foyle. These lands would have also benefited from their proximity to Derry, not just in terms of the potential for trade, but also because new arrivals migrating to Ireland would have used the town as an entrepot for taking up lands in near proximity. The trends which were which were in evidence by 1613, continued throughout much of the mid-1610s. For instance, in Boilock and Vanna in the southwest of the county, many of the original grantees continued to fail to meet their obligations, as outlined in the Articles of Plantation. 
a number had belatedly begun to build in the second half of the decade, but this was not enough to prevent them having their estates confiscated. In 1618, John Murray, a favourite of King James I and a keeper of the Privy Purse, and from 1622, Viscount Annan, and from 1624, the first Earl of Annandale, was appointed as an overseer of the entire 10,000 acres of land in the precinct. So the actual acreage was vastly uh, more than what was actually intended, but the, uh, the surveys were imperfect to begin with. He was formally granted the entire precinct in 1620. To the north in Kilmacrinan, the servitors had made mixed progress in the mid to late 1610s. Some effectively did nothing to develop their lands, as reported by Nicholas Penner in 1619, following yet another systematic survey of the six cheated counties. But a few had made considerable progress. One such was Sir George Malbury. Malbury had come into possession of the Ballyrahan and Letterkenny proportion in the east of the precinct following his marriage to the widow of the original grantee, Patrick Crawford. Crawford did almost nothing to develop his lands prior to his death at the siege of the castle of Dunyveig and Oila in 1616. However, under Malbury's direction, the town of Letterkenny quickly emerged on the estate. By 1619, Malbury had erected a bone next to which the town was growing rapidly to a settlement of 40 houses. It was expressly noted that these were British settlers and clearly consisted largely of families as they were able to muster an arm over 50 men. Three years later, the settlement had further expanded to 50 houses, a substantial proportion of which were described as, as being built of stone. The presence of a water mill and the description of the town as a market town further attests to considerable urban development here in the late 1610s and early 1620s. Yet even here, the development was in the extreme east of the precinct, near on Dromgown Lock. Indeed, the major urban centres other than Donegal and Killybegs on the south coast, which developed in Donegal throughout the first three decades of the plantation, notably Letterkenny, St Johnston, Newtown Cunningham, Lifford and Manor Cunningham, were again located towards the east in the valleys of the River Foyle and River Finn. As such, even the development of Letterkenny was a peculiarity within the area of Kilmacrinan, and the development of the plantation in the region was, like with Boilock and Banna, somewhat stunted in the first 10 years of its existence. All of this stood in stark contrast to the situation prevailing in the central and northeastern parts of the county in the precincts of Lifford and Port Lock. In both Nicholas Penner's report on the districts in 1619 and those made by Richard Hadzer and Thomas Phillips as part of the 1622 Commission into Irish Affairs, the activities of the undertakers in these parts was reported upon glowingly with the grantees having largely met their obligations to build stone houses and bones and settle British tenants on their estates. To take but one example, in the precinct of Lifford, Sir Ralph Bingley had come into possession of the proportions of Tone of Forest and Tremor and Lorga. On the Tremor and Lorga proportion in the north of the precinct, Bingley had erected a substantial bone and castle near Dromgowan Lock, while a village of some eight houses with a mill had been settled nearby. Additionally, some 30 to 40 British families were living throughout the proportion. In the south of the precinct on Bingley's Tone of Forest proportion, the situation was more advanced still. Here, Bingley had built a bone near the River Finn, next to which the village of Ballybofey had emerged. By 1622, this consisted of a dozen cottages built of timber and stone, and there were reportedly 20 British families settled throughout the proportion. 
Bingley's lands were representative of the estates throughout Lifford and Portlock, as reported in 1619 and 1622. Thus, in the centre and northeast of the county, in stark contrast to the western peripheries, the plantation was evolving in line with what, what the planners had wished for. Nucleated villages of British settlers were emerging next to strongholds throughout this richer farming land with an entrepot for goods through Derry. Many of these patterns continued throughout the 1620s. In Boylock and Banna, Annandale oscillated between farming out his proportion to George Hamilton and having it managed on his behalf by an agent, one Herbert Maxwell. Maxwell was the subject of regular criticism, and despite some advances, such as the growth of the town of Killy Beggs on the south coast of the precinct during this period, there was in general a continuing failure to develop the region and widespread retention of Irish tenants. For instance, when all able British men were being mustered across Ulster in 1630, just 143 appeared to the muster for the precinct. Here's the breakdown of it. The ironic thing about it is that of the 143, they only had four weapons. So I don't know what they were going to do. Comparative to other regions, this suggests a strikingly low level of British settlement in this part of Donegal, certainly drastically below what had been envisioned by colonial theorists and the planners of the plantation. Elsewhere, as the decade progressed, the major issue became the continued presence of Irish tenants on most proportions and negotiations with the Crown to find a compromise to what was a reality across the six counties. This was finally reached in 1628 when Article 26 of the Graces stipulated that Irish tenants could be retained provided they were limited to holding a quarter of any individual undertaker's lands and that a fine was paid for those retained in this fashion. Again, this must have been a greater issue in the more sparsely settled westerly regions of poorer farming land. The musters taken across Ulster by William Graham around 1630 would certainly seem to suggest so. As noted, just 143 British adult males were mustered at this time across the entirety of the precinct of Boilock and Banna. As such, this region was still undoubtedly largely populated by the Irish. However, the situation on the basis of the muster rolls was considerably different in Lifford and Portlock. For instance, on the proportions of Magravlen, Lettergall and Cashel, held by the third Duke of Lennox in Portlock, Alone, some 166 British adult males were mustered. Similar numbers proportionate to the size of estates were recorded elsewhere in the centre and northeast of the county. Such figures indicate not only a higher degree of British settlement and a concomitant reduced number of Irish in these regions, but also show that the undertakers in these regions had actually met the targets regarding British settlers which had been laid down for them in the Articles of Plantation. Any examination of the development of the plantation in Donegal in the 1630s is hampered by a lack of governmental surveys and estate records from which to extrapolate information, a deficiency which is mirrored elsewhere across the six counties during the 1630s. Yet much can be determined. For instance, <clears throat> in the early 1630s, a prospect loomed which augured great change. In the winter of 1630, the first Earl of Cork, Richard Boyle, entered negotiations with the Earl of Annandale to purchase his estate, comprising the entire precinct of Boilock and Banna in the southwest of the county. For £8,000 was the nominal fee that he proposed to pay. In one of his letters to Annandale, Boyle put forward a characteristically modest reason for purchasing the lands, noting that Boilock and Banna bore his name. 
And so he wanted to own it. The negotiations fizzled out the following year as Annandale seemingly refused to sell for the £8,000 Boyle was offering. It's an intriguing episode, though. There can be little doubt that Boyle would have been an energetic landlord here, and this particularly unadvanced part of the plantation would have developed rapidly had he come into ownership of what constituted a large part of the entire county. Yet with Annandale remaining in possession, the general pattern of settlement and development remained the same in southwest Donegal as it had for the previous two decades. Indeed, throughout the 1630s, complaints regularly arose about the prevalence of the Irish in this part of the county, and by the outbreak of the 1641 rebellion, much of the region would have remained largely unaffected by the plantation, some three decades after its implementation. Elsewhere, things were markedly different, and there are signs of how the compromise reached concerning retention of native tenants was impacting on the landscapes of precincts such as Lifford and Port Locke. Um, so I'll just return here to an area which I touched on a while ago, um, the proportions of Tone of Forest and Tremor and Larga, which Sir Ralph Bingley had come into possession of in the 1610s. We have an unusually detailed view of the demographic arrangements prevailing here in the late 1630s, owing to a tenant schedule housed amongst the Basel manuscripts in Buckinghamshire Records Office. This was drawn up as part of some articles of agreement in 1637, whereby Robert Harrington sold the proportions to one Martin Basil of Middlesex. Harrington having previously acquired the lands through his marriage to Anne Bingley, Sir Ralph's widow. What the schedule reveals is that the Irish on the estate had largely been given lands around Crappa and Cregan on the proportions of Tone of Forest. More strikingly, it attests to the fact that the Irish presence was quite limited on this, some of the prime land available in Donegal. Thus, we have here a situation, again, in marked contrast to that prevailing in the western and southwestern parts of the county. This was a region which had been effectively planted and had evolved into a decidedly British corner of Donegal. Whether the processes which were underway on the lands Basil purchased in Lifford in the late 1630s were typical of the county is somewhat unclear, but it seems likely that they are suggestive of developments elsewhere in the precincts of Lifford and Portlock at this time. But again, the lack of estate records makes it conjectural. Though we can only speculate on these developments is unfortunate. One reason for this is the utter lack of depositions for Donegal, following from the rebellion which spread across Ulster in late October and November 1641. While hundreds of depositions were taken from survivors in counties such as Cavan and Armagh, Donegal, along with Londonderry, are easily the poorest in this regard. There were just around a dozen depositions taken concerning events in Donegal, the likely explanation being that settlers in the county fled to Derry, from where they sailed to England or Scotland, thus bypassing Dublin and the likelihood of being deposed. What the poultry number of depositions tell us is pretty limited but suggestive. There are records of a number of atrocities, Foremost here were the events at the farm of one Robert Aikens. Here a company led by Manus O'Donnell appeared early one morning. As with many such incidents recorded in the depositions, the assailants were well known to their victims and were initially given free entry into the Aikens household. At some point money was demanded from Aikens who pleaded poverty through the recent marriage of his daughters, whereupon O'Donnell and his followers dragged Aikens and his three sons outside into the barn, where they were hung along with one of the Aikens' servants. 
Pursuant from this, the party proceeded to the nearby house of John Adams, with whom they returned to the Aikens' residence, and showed him the hanging corpses, presumably as a threat should he not reveal his own money. A number of the surviving depositions for Donegal attest to this version of, of events, and there seems little doubt in the veracity of it. What is curious is that it was deposed that this atrocity did not occur to the best of the deponent's recollections until February 1642, raising the question why the Aikens and their neighbours were still resident on their farms months after the outbreak of the insurrection. Was the disruption in certain parts of Donegal limited enough that settlers had remained in certain areas? In terms of the wider pattern of the insurrection in Donegal, what the depositions reveal most tellingly is that the leading insurgents came from amongst the McSweeney's, O'Boyles and O'Gallagher's, and that their, their activity was not limited to Donegal, with groups making inroads into West Tyrone and Fermanagh and so west into Sligo. That these were the leading figures of the insurrection broader than any O'Donnell's is telling in indicating how effectively the plantation had diluted the O'Donnell lordship in the three decades since its inception. However, the general scale of the revolt and its precise circumstances in Donegal is more difficult to track here than in most other parts of the country, owing to the limited number of depositions that have survived. So, to conclude, this paper has just generally touched on some of the broad aspects of the development of the Ulster plantation in Donegal in the three decades between the initiation of the plantation and the outbreak of the 1641 rebellion. There are a great many further issues to be explored in relation to it, not least the development of the lands in Inishowen and Tierhugh, which I haven't touched on here. However, from the foregoing, it should be clear that much remains to be examined in the most westerly regions, reaches of Ulster. In doing so, it may reveal much about how the theory of the Ulster plantation was implemented, with widely varying success, not just in different counties and precincts, but on individual estates. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.